Thanks for listening to Downrange. The podcast is absolutely free. But if you want ad-free listening and early access to next week's episodes, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you look forward to the holidays? Maybe you struggle with seasonal blues. This time of year can be a lot, and it's natural to feel some sadness or anxiety about it. But adding something new and positive to your life can counteract some of those feelings. Therapy can be a bright spot amid all the stress and change. Something to look forward to, to make you feel grounded, and to give you the tools to manage everything going on. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries, and it powers you to be the best version of yourself and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com range today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash range. Warning. This podcast contains adult content and recreations of battle scenes, including violence, gunshots, explosions, and graphic descriptions, which may be triggering for those with past trauma. Listener discretion is advised. From Tenderfoot TV and Telegraph Creative. This is Downrange. I'm your host, Remy Adeleke. Though I was active duty in the U.S. military for 13 years, I wasn't born in the United States. I spent my early childhood in West Africa. I found my way here after a series of hardships my family faced. And when I found my place with the Navy SEALs, it changed the course of my life. I'm really excited to introduce our guest today because he's the only guest this season that wasn't actually an American soldier or officially part of the U.S. government. My friend, Hamadi Jassim is a former Iraqi soldier who collected intelligence for the CIA and U.S. Armed Forces while they were stationed in Iraq in the early 2000s. His story is incredible and probably unlike anything you've heard before. My name is Hamidi Jassim. I am author of The Terrorist Whisper, former Iraqi soldier and an American spy. I was the command sergeant major of the Iraqi military, and I uh, worked as an intelligent asset for the U.S. intelligence during the surge in Iraq between 2003 and 2005. I grew up in Baghdad, Iraq. My neighborhood was actually a, a modern town. A lot of people here would think that the Middle East is just nothing but a desert. It's not. Baghdad is a city, is an ancient city, and our neighborhood was decent. You know, we lived in a middle-class neighborhood. The childhood wasn't easy. Iraq was under sanctions. We were living under a horrific dictator like Saddam Hussein. 
people did not have enough food to eat. There was a lot of poverty. Life was just how to survive your day, how to get to the next one. So many things were happening around us that really life wasn't really what it's supposed to be. As a child, I didn't understand really. I had a little information about my surrounding. I, I didn't understand the politics or the government or how things were going. You grew up as an innocent child, regardless of how the hardship was. We didn't really understand the political process. We didn't understand who was controlling us. But the older you get is the more chains you see that's around you, around your family. You are taught to be uh, careful as a child. Sometimes running to the wrong people can cost you your life. It can cost your family a lot of trouble. You couldn't say anything about the government. You couldn't uh, talk back to a regime member. You couldn't talk to them. You couldn't look them in the face and things can turn against you at any seconds. And we had a, a saying, it says a pen can kill you before a gun does. And what that means is that uh, any regime member writes a false report that you are an anti-government person, the government will immediately execute you or take you to prison. We had situations where Saddam Hussein had turned that country into a psychological experiment. Wives that were writing reports about their husbands speaking against the government and then they got executed. We had brothers, we had people who wrote reports against their own parents. What Saddam did is he made us all police each other and he turned the whole country into an intelligent agency. Back then, you can tell about a regime member from like a mile away. They dress differently, they talk differently, everything about them is different. That's the culture that Saddam Hussein implemented. They all acted like him, all of his men, all of his people. This was the norm, and this how life was in Baghdad back then. Hamidi's journey to becoming a soldier began when he was just a kid. While walking home from school, an event transpired that would change Hamidi's life forever. If you weren't part of the first-class community, if your parents were not regime members, you kind of walk to school while other people would be dropped off. As I was leaving middle school, I was walking to go home. A regime member who was actually a police officer with two guards pulled in next to me. He looked at me and he asked me a question while he was in the car. And he said, do you have any money in your pocket? It was a common thing where they will take anything you have in your pocket and just walk away. I had about maybe 500 dinars, which is equal absolutely nothing in American dollars, maybe five bucks or so. I was collecting that money over holidays to buy myself new shoes. I have kept some money in my, my socks and money in my wallet. All I did is say no and kept walking away. He pulled his car right in front of me. Got out. He was about six foot tall, officer with two guards, and he turned me around and searched me and found money in my wallet. <laughs> and when he did, he turned around and he slapped me really hard. He was a six foot tall officer. I was a 12 year old kid. And when I went down to the ground, I immediately couldn't hear through one of my ears how hard that he hit me. And I ended up losing myself during that moment. And I cursed him back. 
And when I cursed him back, this was a big deal in our culture. Shoo! Tesh Ulet! It's a very known curse in our culture. We say kus uchtek means your sister vagina. So when I said it, this was a big deal that if you mentioned someone's sister or mom, this was part of our culture. And in the cursing words, it wasn't something that was in my nature. I wasn't a violent person. I wasn't a person that was not behaving or anything, but he hit me very hard. When he hit me hard, I couldn't hold it no more. I didn't understand why I had to give my money and why I have to endure everything that he was doing to me. And he grabbed me immediately from my collar and carried me and threw me inside of the patrol car. The two guards right next to me got on the car and started driving. As the car drove for a few minutes, one of the guards was next to me. He was like an older of age. He was like about 50 years old or so. He looked at him and he just said, he said, you know, you took his money. You took everything you need from him. Let's just kick him in the butt and let him go home. He's just a kid. He was sitting in the front of the car and he looked back at him and he said, if you keep talking, I'm going to throw you. I'm throwing him tonight. The car continued to drive for about 45 minutes. At that point, I have made it to different sides of Baghdad that I have never seen before. I was driven into a checkpoint that was the Iraqi Ministry of Interior. Right behind that checkpoint, no regular Iraqi citizens were even allowed to go down that road. It was my first time in my life seeing what's behind those checkpoints. And I was driven into right by the Ministry of Interior to the back of it that was a compound. And my hope was just a punishment. Maybe they'll beat me and send me home. I was terrified. I wasn't uh, sure what was going to happen to me that night. When the slide gate opened, I went inside and I still remember the first thing that was in front of my face. I saw like what looked like an animal cages, concrete walls, and I just couldn't see anything. I sat in the car. He got out. They went inside. A few minutes after that, they opened the car door. As I walked in, I saw there were guards in every corner of that room and they were carrying bats. There was a chair that he was sitting on. And he got around the table and grabbed a pen. There was a paper that looked like there was a report, a long one-page report that was written in it. Uskut ya walad. And he said, sign. The way he said it, I was, I was terrified. I didn't even read what's in there. He didn't ask me to read, he asked me to sign. So I immediately grabbed the pen, I signed. I didn't know I signed on a paper that stated I was an anti-government revolutionary fighter that's tried to assassinate a Ba'ath Party member while on duty. And I signed on it, I didn't realize what I was signed on. 
Once I signed on it, I was immediately grabbed and walked towards the animal cages. Right behind it, there was a hallway. There was a dark hallway that I went through. I went into a warehouse. And there was about like 500 people inside. Had no idea where I was. I had no idea how many of it was behind. Is there more people? Is that all? I had no idea what's going on around me. All I remember is seeing it was a compound with high walls and towers, and we were blocked, separated from the rest of the world. It wasn't like a normal prison, but anybody would think it's a prison where you have one inmate or so. It was like 500 people. It was like a warehouse, concrete warehouse that's turned into a prison. I sat in there, and within a few minutes, I was scared sitting back to the back of the wall, looking left and right, seeing how many people inside. It was, it was extremely terrifying. Within minutes, the door opened. As soon as the door opened, I was a little excited that I'm, it might be, that might be it. And my name was called. And when they called my name, in my head, I thought, like, maybe just they wanted to scare me and take me home. Or maybe this is just some kind of a, a way to make sure that I don't, I don't talk back. I don't do anything. I don't curse anybody again. And when they called my name, as I got up to walk, I was in my school clothes still. I, as I walked towards the door, one of the prisoners got up and put his hands on my shoulder and he said, Scream as hard as you can until your voice bothered them or they won't let you go. And I just still didn't understand what that meant. The guards screamed at me, and I, I walked towards the door, and I was grabbed immediately by two guards. And I was taken to the left side of that hallway. I came from the right side and ended up going further. So I, my thought was I was going to go to a different cell. This prison was a processing place to go to a bigger prison. And what it is is they try to get you to confess to the things that you didn't do. This get to use as an evidence to the Supreme Bath Party judge. They will do everything they can, everything in their hands to make sure that whatever confessions they made you sign on will fit your description and that you have signed multiple times on papers that you actually did the thing they said that you did. And that was the norm. That wasn't just us, that was just what they did with every single Iraqi citizen. And I was taken to a room, probably the size of a restaurant. And it had no windows, it was painted all red, and it had chains coming from the top of the ceiling, which was similar to what I saw at a butcher store. And I truly thought this was like a butcher a place. I was hanged from my legs upside down. Biddak come on, you lad. They started beating me. They would have a water hose with a stick inside of it. And that thing would hit you really hard. When they hit you hard, they hit you either in your back or in the back of your head. 
When I got beaten, I was being asked the questions to answer for confessions that I didn't really have. <laughs> they weren't going to say that this is someone that refused to give his money. When he written that, he written that based on anger. And he written that I was trying to kill him. That I might have ties to something. And at the time, I didn't even know the name of the resistance. I didn't even know exactly who was who in Iraq and who was fighting who. I had no idea. Perhaps some of the names they mentioned, I just said, yes, I know that that group, I know that. And I had no idea what I was doing and what I was saying. And I just wanted to avoid being beaten and being hit. I spent about half an hour and I just couldn't take that anymore. I agreed to whatever they were saying. I was taken back, thrown back in there. I didn't remember how I was back at the cell again. The same prisoner came in and said, um, this is not it. They will be back again for you as soon as you get better. We'll be right back after this short break. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you look forward to the holidays? Maybe you struggle with seasonal blues. This time of year can be a lot, and it's natural to feel some sadness or anxiety about it. But adding something new and positive to your life can counteract some of those feelings. Therapy can be a bright spot amid all the stress and change, something to look forward to, to make you feel grounded, and to give you the tools to manage everything going on. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and it empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It's not only for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com range today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot range. Hydration is key to my daily life. And you don't have to be a former Navy SEAL or an athlete to need extra hydration throughout your day. From back-to-back Zoom meetings to long travel days, even those fun nights out, Liquid IV makes it easy to stay hydrated. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. All in a single stick. And now their hydration multiplier comes in three delicious sugar-free flavors, white peach, green grape, and lemon lime, a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. Personally, it's the flavors that do it for me. When it tastes good and is good for you, it's a win-win. Green grape and lemon lime are highly recommended if you want the fresh, crisp taste. Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. It also replaces sugar with a proprietary amino acid blend. Use it daily before a workout or whenever you're feeling run down. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, 
or you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code RANGE at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code RANGE at liquidiv.com. Now, back to our story. Once you were inside, you don't know what time it was anymore. You don't know what day it was. Just remember seeing the light of the day from a very high window on top of the prison that is no bigger than probably about four feet wide. Realize it was night when it's dark outside of that. Everybody was in the floor. There was no beds, there was nothing. There was only one bathroom. I couldn't sleep. I was actually too afraid to go to the bathroom. I would wait until everybody's asleep and go to the bathroom. And I still remember the one time I went to the bathroom and there was a a rat in the bathroom and I ran back and I just sat where I was. They gave you what's supposed to be a soup that was uh, hot water with chickpeas in it. Chickpeas weren't even cooked. So you had to smash them with your hands and, and eat them. And they gave us a bread that we couldn't even break. It was the lowest stuff anybody, any human being deserved to eat. I don't even think animals could have ate the food. There were people there have lost their mind, came to that prison being healthy human beings and then end up just losing their mind and doing things that they don't even know what they were doing anymore. These were people have not seen the light of the day in years. Some of these people have been there for a long, long time, and probably way before I was born. He probably the most miserable condition I've ever seen in my whole life. Most of the people were there in that prison were older of age. A lot of them were taken there for political reasons, and some were taken there for other reasons, and not all of them were actually people who are truly against the government. Some of them were people actually that other people running reports that they weren't against the government, and then end up going there into prison. I have spoken and met some of them during that time, the period that I was there. And they felt some kind of a sympathy for me because I was young. I spent about a few weeks there. My biggest worry back then was to just let my family know where I am. I had some money left in my socks that actually he didn't find. One of the prisoners took that money from me and they all leave. They all go home and there's a new chef that comes in during the night. And there was a phone. A landline phone that was at the commander of the prison office. And it looked like one of the guards actually took money and made phone calls with messages to the prisoners and uh, to the prisoners' families. He gave him money, and I asked, I said, whoever answered the phone, if you could just tell me the name of the person to answer the phone. I just wanted to make sure that they're not messing around, they're not just taking the money. The same guard came back through the prison door, told me that he made the phone call, that my brother answered the phone. He gave me my brother's name, which I felt relieved at that point. I might not leave here. That might be the end of my life. At least they would know where I went and what happened. There was thousands of people of Iraqis that were taken and their families never knew where they went or where they disappeared. Just sat on the wall at that point and just thought of how I would live to the rest of my life. 
in a prison like that. After what they were asking me, the questions, the confessions, and how long would that take until I can get out and see the lights again? My family immediately came over, met with the commander of the prison, and they were known to be taking bribes and taking money. And my family offered a big sum of money to smash the report that I signed on. If they didn't, my papers will be submitted to the Bath Party Supreme Judge. I would be executed or taken to an underground prison. Once that paper was signed by me, I was considered an enemy of the state, the enemy of a country. My family had paid the money, which I didn't know about any of the negotiations that were going on in the outside world. Within weeks, they called my name, and I was taken to the opposite side of the prison, which is not the same side where they will take you and torture you. And I was taken back to exactly where I was coming from, and I thought, this is it. They're probably going to kill me. My eyes was covered and my hands were handcuffed to the back. The first thing that I felt was one of the guards behind me actually opened my handcuffs. Stand up. Okay, yalla. And uh, <laughs> said go. As I looked back at him and the slide door opened and I saw my dad. And at that point, I was just silent. I wasn't really sure where I was going, what's happening. And he said again, go. And I just kept walking. I walked out. As that slide gate closed, I uh, couldn't believe that I was out. Oh, I couldn't believe that I just saw a world that I didn't think existed in this country. And I walked out and I didn't say anything to my dad. I was extremely silent. And my dad didn't say much either. He was angry that I got into an argument with a regime member. I got home and I was taken to the doctor to check all my scars on my back. I needed a medicine for my skin. Had to shower for the first time in weeks. Make sure that I didn't pick any diseases and go into doctors and medical checks. Just remember the terrifying moment sitting in our family bathtub, looking down into what I went through. What in the world? Where do I live? I realized at that moment that I wasn't living in a free country. This is not a normal life in any way. When I got out, I was given a warning that if anything I do anymore, it will cost me my life immediately. I started just showing up at school. I didn't care if anybody said a word to me. I didn't care about making school. I didn't care about taking classes. I actually avoided most of my classes. I would run away. I'll just go to the back of the school, hang out. Immediately, I started failing one class after another. Until one day, I opened my front door, and there was an American soldier standing right in front of my door. During the war, when uh, the United States military entered Iraq, they started moving closer and closer to our cities. And when they moved into Baghdad, like all of a sudden, we went from Saddam regime being all over the place to hearing nothing and nobody. And all of a sudden, you open the door, and you see an American standing in front of your door. To me, that was a shocking moment, right? It was your first time in your life. You open the front door and you see a white guy standing there. 
And I shut the door immediately and I ran back. And my family said, what, what's going on outside? And I said, there's an American soldier standing right in front door. And I saw his flag on his arm. And I said, uh, there's an American right there in the front door. And my family said, don't talk to them. What if they pull out like they did in 1991, the first Gulf War? What if they are non-Americans? What if it's an Iraqi? An Iraqi's uh, intelligence are trying to pretend to be like an American. And I just looked, I said, well, this is the whitest Iraqi I've ever seen. I went back and I opened the door and I just said, uh, sir, what is your name? What, is, what are you from? He said, my name is Brad and I'm from Texas. And I said, Brad, are you guys leaving this time? Are you guys staying in Iraq? And he looked back at me and he said, uh, what do you mean by staying? I said, are you guys going to leave or staying? He said, no, we are totally staying. That was the moment I opened the rest of the door and I went outside and I talked to him. You could tell it was my first time in my life to open that door and walk out of that door and look left and right and see none of those that oppressed us around. First time in my whole life. To open that door and just not be scared anymore. To look left and right. And when you looked left and right, actually, there was no sign of these individuals. You only saw their houses. They weren't there. They were in the front of the house. They weren't watching anybody anymore. This was a big game change. People were scared and terrified of more of the Iraqi government than the American soldiers. Actually, people couldn't believe there were Americans in Baghdad. People looked at these American Bradleys and the trucks and the Humvees. They couldn't believe that there was Americans. These are not Iraqis, and there was no sign of the Iraqi government anymore. Iraq was controlled for 35 years by this dictator. At that point, I just realized that Saddam has went down. In March 2003, the U.S. invaded Iraq. Saddam Hussein's reign ended in April, following the fall of Baghdad, after which he went MIA. He'd been in power since 1979. In December 2003, Operation Red Dawn succeeded, and the U.S. military captured Hussein in hiding. After Hussein's regime crumbled, Hamidi decided to join the new Iraqi military in the spirit of protecting and defending the country he believed in. When the American military got there, we had no idea what the Americans were like. They established a radio station. They started calling all the police to go back to work. And they let go of the old Iraqi military. And I immediately, as soon as I heard that ad on the radio, and I went to downtown Baghdad and I went to the recruiting center and walked in there. I said, I want to join the military. And he looked at my ID and he said, I'm sorry, kid. We are taking 18 years old and older. You are just only 17. And I was crushed at that point. I immediately ran back. But then there was a guy that actually in my neighborhood that faked IDs. They were written by hands pretty much. It were easy to uh, fake or change the date of birth. And I had him change my date of birth and he pushed me like one year. He said, if I was you, I would wait until the next day and I would go back again when nobody would notice. When I went back, there was about four people. We were probably the most hopeless five people in the country standing in that line. I went in there and I showed my ID. The American soldier looked at my ID and he said, I thought you were 17 this morning. And I looked back at him and I said, we, ha we had a birthday. He laughed and he said, you know, go get me one of your parents to sign this application. And I immediately ran home, got my mom's and I got her to come in and sign the application. And he let me in and I got recruited as soldier number 19. 
got medically checked and shipped to northern of Iraq to be trained by an American company called MPRI, the retired Vietnam veterans who are responsible to train the first division of the Iraqi military. I knew at the time that if I didn't make a decision like that, I would live like a slave to the rest of my life. That was my life, was living like a slave under that regime and whatever they said, you do. And if you don't, you get punished or you die. And I just didn't want to live that life anymore. This was the only opportunity in my life to get out and run away from that environment. Wanted to make sure that I don't go back to that experience again, no matter what. And the only way was to fight those who wants to force you. I can relate to Hamidi's story. The corruption in his native country negatively affected his childhood, and he could never forget what it was like to be treated so horribly by authority figures in his own home. Hamidi allowed his experiences to guide his moral compass. He made his own decisions on what was right and wrong. The regime at the time lost Iraq, but it didn't take him a while to regroup, to establish a terrorist organization. So all of a sudden you have not just the older former regime members, you also had Al-Qaeda who just entered the fight and joined them. It was my first time to carry a gun and fight for a constitution I never had. I went from being the prisoner to having an equal fight against the enemy that I faced my whole life. I never had rights, but it was my first time fighting for an actual constitution that would protect my rights. I knew at that point that I might not make it, when I joined, I went to a training base. I became an NCO, an NCO at a young age. I was actually one of the youngest around there. I remember there was about 150 people, the first group that went in to join the Iraqi military. Each and every one of us has his own reasons. I wasn't the only guy that had been through a hard time. I was the least guy that's been through a hard time. Some of them were former political prisoners. Some have lost their wife and kids executed by the regime. Some had lived a very, very rough life. To us, this was a big deal. We were eating a good meal, and we were in our first time in our life doing something that our parents couldn't do, is to stand up to those that oppressed us. At that point, I think the feeling of that was extremely different. After our training was over, we were doing PT twice a day. Those Vietnam veterans were preparing us for the big fight. We just physically and mentally changed as individuals within these three months that we were training there. I mean, look, we were living under sanctions. We didn't have food. We didn't have anything. And all of a sudden, training every single day, eating really good food for the first time because Iraq lived under sanctions. And all of a sudden, we went to training base and we found a five-star restaurant that we probably couldn't afford to buy bread from back in so downtown. And our food was high protein. We were eating great food training really hard, and you can tell the physical appearance of the Iraqi soldier changed within three months. After that, they had three Marine Corps instructors from the United States Marine Corps that all three were gunner instructors in the Marine Corps. They showed up to pick 20 members among the hundred and something soldiers that were there. So they showed up at training every single day and they watched all of us and they picked up a team of 20 people to go to training called PSD team stands for a personal security detail. Basically, it's um, training bodyguards in the military. I knew a couple of them prior, and then the rest was all new people from different platoons and different companies. We couldn't understand what the point was of that team or why we were handpicked by these Marine Corps instructors. 
At the time, Al-Qaeda was just introducing themselves with the suicide bombers and internal attacks and all kind of stuff. And we were training to fight an enemy within the same circle of ours. And the training was not easy. It was extremely hard. You were given an option that if you don't want to do it anymore, you can leave. Immediately, three people quit. There was about 17 of us that graduated. We became brothers to the rest of our life. A few of us, we were pulled back to Baghdad. Our job was to protect the recruiting center and make sure we recruit more soldiers. This was the most biggest target in the world. Reason why? Because it was right outside of Haifa Street, which was the most dangerous two miles in the world. The U.S. base was a few miles down, so we had only about maybe 8 to 12 Americans that are behind the gate helping us in case we need anything. The barracks was right behind the gate. There was a, an American Bradley that was parked there. The gate was no longer than 500 meter wide, a couple towers. When I got there, they said, hey, you don't have to worry about going to the enemy, they'll come to you. And what it meant is that they attack you during the morning to scare the Iraqi people from joining the Iraqi military and to make sure the Iraqi military wasn't gonna grow as a force to face them. So they attack this place more than anything. And at night, they will come actually to you. They'll be attacking the gate. Every single day, they would either have a car bomb or a suicide bomber blowing on people standing on the line. We literally defended that gate with our life. Every single day, we will have something in the morning. And when we go to sleep at night, we will be attacked by heavy fire. There's no sleep. They were pressuring us every single day. So mentally, physically, you were broken. During that time, there was a terrorist who was a leader of the resistance in Hyper Street. His uh, name is Said Hitchum, who was a former colonel in the Republican Guard. And most of the people that lived in Hyper Street were former regime members. They had weapons, they had training. They were a little bit highly skilled than any other militias or radical group in the area. One day I got called by my commander and my commander said, I need you and uh, your lieutenant to go to the end of Haifa Street. There was 25 dead bodies of new Iraqi recruits. These people were not even in the military. They were picked out of the bus who went through Haifa Street and they were executed. They needed us to pick up the bodies and uh, take them to the morgue where their families can go pick them up. Me, my lieutenant, we got there. We drove through Haifa Street. Truly the place was weird. It was uh, very quiet. If you drop the pin, you can hear it that day. Quiet, and there's not even a sign of anything. They placed the bodies under a bridge that backs to the Tigers River. And we drove towards the end of Haifa Street and we we're trying to figure out why they put the bodies there. It's a downhill that you have to come down, park your cars, and we couldn't get the vehicles to where the bodies were. So the vehicles stayed up above the hill. We couldn't understand why they were placing them in there. <laughs> As we went down, we realized it was an ambush. 
between us and them, there's about a uh, 150 feet. Shit, the first RPG hit one of the vehicles that had a three soldiers in it. We realized there was about 150 members of the Al Qaeda was right behind the walls. We are pinned down. Send in a QRF. Stat. Repeat. We are pinned down. Send QRF. The fire was so heavy, we found ourselves pinned down, downhill, and we separated into two different groups. And at that point, I lost contact with my lieutenant. We were so outnumbered that we couldn't even get our heads straight to know where we're coming from. All of a sudden, every time I peek out, trying to locate where the enemy is, I would see dead soldiers of mine. There was a sniper that had a high ground, had the perfect position to actually kill anybody that would make it out of the column. If you were not covered at that point, you will be dead immediately. A hole in the wall that was about as wide as your hand. So when we were shooting, trying to cover or prevent him from getting sight, it was just impossible. We realized at that point that this was a set up ambush to capture an Iraqi soldier in uniform. They actually placed IDs and bombs on the road, knowing that a quick reaction force will come to back us up. They wanted to make sure we stay stuck in there, that nobody would be able to break that ambush and somehow we would run out of ammo or some of us would surrender and then they would be able to get their hands on an actual Iraqi soldier in uniform wearing chocolate chip uniform and try to behead him on camera. The firefight continued. I called for a quick reaction force what's called QRF. I remember hearing in the radio the QRF screaming as they made it into Haifa Street. <sighs> and his last word was, I'm, I've been shot in the back three times. And I have so many people injured, you're in your own. And he turned around, he couldn't get it through. At that point, I threw the radios. I knew there was no getting out. I tried to contact my lieutenant. There was no response. Lieutenant Colonel McDonald of the U.S. 1st Cavalry Division sent an American QRF that was in the area led by a guy named Lieutenant Jeff Morris. The lieutenant had about four Bradleys. He separated into two different teams and he went actually through the danger side of Harvey Street. He took two other Bradleys and came from the other side, from the back of us. As soon as he made it above the bridge that was above us, he uh, opened the 125 cannon on the sniper position immediately. They made a big hauls right where the sniper was. Once they noticed where he was, they opened fire, everybody ran away. I was bleeding myself, I couldn't see. If I had a shrapnel to the left knee and I have a shrapnel above my right eye, I was using my left eye to shoot. Most of my soldiers were dead. As I was being helped by and American soldiers trying to get to the top. There was a traffic light pole. There was a body tied up to the pole. The body was in uniform and it was a lot of blood. And the body had no head. And I looked closer as I cleaned my left eye. It was the only eye I was able to see through. I realized that um, this was the body of my lieutenant. Somehow he was captured alive. And 
was beheaded. And I got on the truck and counted my men. There was only about nine of us left. It was about 90 soldiers that died that day and one died in the way to the hospital. Usually when a firefight like that happens, usually the quick reaction force would make it to you. In our situation, our quick reaction force did not make it and had so many injuries. At the time, they had actually placed the United States military a sign on the beginning of Haifa Street that said that Haifa Street is red, do not enter, to make sure that nobody would enter this ambush. And if they do, they won't make it out. So we were stuck on the inside, down three miles in there. We were pinned down and we were supposed not to get out. That concludes part one of Hamidi's incredible story. Tune in to the next episode of Downrange to hear part two. Again, I'm Remy Adeleke, and thanks for listening. Downrange is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Telegraph Creative. Our hosts are former Navy SEAL Remy Adeleke and former Army Ranger Rich Chapa. Our senior producers are Meredith Stedman and Mike Rooney. From Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. From Telegraph Creative, executive producers are Cliff Sims and Darren McBurnett. From Extreme Concepts, executive producer is Landon Ash. Produced by Eric Quintana, Tracy Kaplan, and Jamie Albright. Dramatization casting and directing by Greg Cooler. Sound designed by Cooper Skinner. Mix and mastered by Cooper Skinner. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Additional production by Christina Dana. Marketing and branding by Telegraph Creative. This episode features the song Fire and Smoke, written by Benjamin Rubino, Bo Steele, and Stacey Stavola performed by the band Steel, courtesy of Fire River Records. This episode features voice acting by Chosi Ayub, Sekeb Sekander, and Graham Farrar. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from the Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing. Visit us at downrangepod.com or on social media at Downrange Podcast. Thanks for listening. Whiskey and coke, fire and smoke. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you look forward to the holidays? Maybe you struggle with seasonal blues. This time of year can be a lot, and it's natural to feel some sadness or anxiety about it. But adding something new and positive to your life can counteract some of those feelings. Therapy can be a bright spot amid all the stress and change. Something to look forward to, to make you feel grounded, and to give you the tools to manage everything going on. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries, and it powers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who experience major trauma.
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com range today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash range.